Take a network break. The virtual donuts are made. The coffee's hot, so pull up a chair as we chew on some tech news. Juniper Networks is making big noise about new AI product launches. VMware customers are reckoning with price increases. Verizon's writing off billions of dollars from its wireline business and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. You can see how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateway, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. Palo Alto Networks has produced a virtual event where you can hear how the latest innovations in SASE can help your organization automate costly and complex IT operations with AI-powered digital experience management connect and secure branch offices in the hybrid workforce with SD-WAN, ZTNA 2.0, and Cloud Secure Web Gateway. Go to paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment or see the show notes for episode 464 for the link. Uh, and then stick around for a Tech Bytes podcast. We're having an automation conversation. Let's say you built a set of automations for your network infrastructure, and now you want teams or departments inside your organization to use those automations. Our sponsor network offers a service catalog, provides a simple front end to make it easy for internal customers to come and consume all those slick capabilities you've worked so hard to develop. We're going to talk with the company's founder about how Networka works. That's a tough discussion, by the way, because this is a very new product finding it and it's a very small team. So you will have to work hard, but if you listen very carefully, there's a good message in there. It's worth taking some time to listen, I think, and see if it fits your specific needs. It's a specific product. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's dive in. Uh, Juniper Networks is rolling out new features in its Mist wireless LAN offering. It's also taking its first steps to integrate its Appstra data center solution with its Marvis AI platform. The company is also announcing new 800 giggy routers and switches. Uh, there's a lot here, so bear with us while we unpack. Um, we're going to first start with the new wireless LAN product. It's called Marvis Minis. This is software that runs on Mist APs. It can be used for synthetic testing of your wireless network. They're designed to mimic the profile of an IoT device and even end user devices like laptops with different OSs. You can choose the profile of the minis. The minis can also capture packets if you want packet level detail. And again, the idea is to give YLAN operators more granular detail about how the YLAN network is performing, spot issues like misconfigurations, and let operators run diagnostic tests or check after changes have been made to your wireless network. Uh, so this is something that uh, Aruba had years ago. So the idea it was originally started off when BLE came around, Bluetooth Low Energy. And the idea was is that you could put these little nodes around your network um, to mimic devices and you could use them for, well, what amounts to digital experience monitoring. But in the Wi-Fi space, you've got to put the software agents have to actually be hardware. You can't just say, oh, I'll put a software agent in a router or a, a VM somewhere or on a desktop workstation in the branch network or whatever. What you actually want to do is you have to put them somewhere so you could monitor the Wi-Fi um, without referring to a laptop, which might have driver problems or performance problems or something like that. Does that make sense? Yes. Explain that well enough. Yeah. Yep. So these mini sort of starts to put the Juniper Wi-Fi on a par with the other much more serious solutions. So Cisco has the same thing. Um, I don't know if Meraki does. If anybody knows, let me know and we can fix that next week. But the idea is, is that you buy these little mini boxes, you put them out there, they connect to the Wi-Fi and they act as autonomous agents so that you can monitor the quality and you can use them to then do synthetic testing, which is digital experience monitoring. We've talked about that quite a bit on the network. And that means that MIST is now able to get a whole lot more data points and start to predictively, much more react proactively based on data, predict how your network is performing. So if you could run synthetic tests on Saturday when the office is empty and then look at the performance, run those same tests in peak hour, you can absolutely compare what that looks like. You know, whether it's a load issue or a, an atmospheric issue or an environmental issue. Yeah, just to confirm, to restate that uh, you don't have to buy separate hardware for this if you've already got missed APs that this uh, Marvis Mini runs in the AP, so you don't have to roll out additional hardware for this. Yeah, and Aruba does something similar and as well. I know that for certainty. I imagine the other companies have the same sort of thing. If you're buying their hardware, 
I think the real thing here, of course, is that this means that Mist could run on other people's APs, but there would be a downgrade because Mist relies on certain custom features in the Juniper access points to be able to do some of the advanced stuff. Mm-hmm. Presumably they're non-standard or they're, you know, something that's very specific to what Mist AI wants to collect uh, the telemetry. But if that's true and the HP Juniper acquisition goes through in a year or so, that's going to be very good for them because it means that Mist AI could run over the existing Aruba hub. It could replace the existing Aruba management platform if customers chose that. Right. Uh, second, Juniper's announced the, the company's beginning to incorporate its Marvis AI platform with its AppStore data center design and operations software. It is a very modest first step. The Marvis dashboard, which incorporates the YLAN and Wired Campus operations, is now pulling in information from AppStore so that you have one dashboard where you can see alerts and alarms and issues for wireless, Wired Campus, and data center. However, if you want to make changes in the data center or address issues in the data center, you have to still fire up the AppStore console and go do it there. Can I get a, I told you so, Drew? That one's definitely in the spreadsheet. (laughs) (laughs) I always said that you could take the AI, the Mist and Marvis AI, put it on top of Appstra, and then you would have AI-controlled data centers. So this is the first step in a gradual process. And really, they're just saying the dashboard now sees into Appstra as a a monitoring type thing or a visibility type thing. It's essentially a visibility overlay, yeah, on top of what Appstra is doing underneath. Right, because it's all one network. IP packets don't see themselves as being campus IP or Wi-Fi IP or data center IP. That's all to do with frames underneath, right? Your Mm -hmm. frames are campus frames and your frames are wireless frames and your data center frames are frames, but your IP is not. And the days of worrying about Ethernet have well passed us. Um, And this is entirely predictable. And I bet there's a large team inside of Juniper working furiously to, to make use of the Appstra modeling and engine and capabilities to be able to apply the value that AI, that MIST has been bringing to the, to the wireless and the campus networking. This is and um, good to see it's finally starting to ship and also good to see they're rolling it out piece by piece so right. that they get time to analyze, detect, and if it's not right or get customer feedback on us rather than just go boom, you know, or do it the Cisco way, which is to go, you know, make a big launch and then throw it at customers and force it out into the market and then find out it didn't work very well. So I'm much more of a fan of this gradual, gradual approach than the big boom approach that other companies might follow. Yeah. And also in relation to this announcement, uh, there's a new Marvis virtual network assistant or VNA for the data center where you can run natural language queries uh, in the Marvis console and ask questions. This uh, virtual network assistant is based on Juniper's data center documentation and knowledge bases. So for example, if you needed to look up a specific command or something else, instead of digging through docs, you can just ask VNA. Uh, You cannot execute tasks and stuff using this VNA. It's it's just a lookup, but it is uh, drawing from Juniper's own documentation, so you don't have to worry about those sort of generative uh, uh, language issues you get from um, a model that was trained on all kinds of data. This is very specific data, so the uh, output should be fairly clean. Yeah, we're seeing a shift here. One of the things we saw out of CES 2024 was companies talking about large action models. Uh, And this is where instead of trying to train a large language model, Mm -hmm. they train a subset which just says, I understand actions. So instead of, you know, if you wanted to say, please, can you explain to me what the bond market does? You don't need that if you're trying to get a device which says, turn on the lights, turn off the lights. You just need something that's focused <laughs> right. on action verbs in a language model, right? And and this is exactly what we're seeing here. This idea that you don't need a, a, a an LLM that is all things to all people. What you need, can do is save a lot of money 
no licensing fees to open AI or whoever, right? right? You could train a modest model on a specific set of actions and you know you have a much higher level of confidence that this AI isn't going to go off and hallucinate or suddenly say something hateful or awful or, you know, tell you to go and buy a competitor's product or, you know, whatever. Um, and so I think we'll see a lot more of this. And I, all the incentives point in this direction for the next three to four years for me. Yeah. Uh, last but not least in this big announcement, uh, Juniper is also announcing new 800 gig PTX routers using Juniper's Express Custom Silicon. Uh, also, they'll be rolling out a new QFX data center switch, also 800 gig running Broadcom's Tomahawk 5 Silicon. Uh, they didn't provide a lot of details on the hardware, but Juniper says the gear will start shipping in volume this March. So maybe we'll circle back around once they have uh, more details. They're also positioning the new routers and switches as being suitable for building Ethernet fabrics specialized for AI and ML training workloads uh, because they do support the Rocky V2 protocol. Um, I know you need a bit more than that, and we need to get into more detail with Juniper about what they're doing to make these, make this equipment specifically good for building these uh, AI Ethernet fabrics. But uh, that's also a discussion for another day. <laughs> AI Ethernet's a little bit vague at the moment, Drew. There's different ways of doing this. Of course, the way that you do it today is you implement Rocky, which means that you implement specific queuing for certain types of traffic. That is real-time, that is Rocky, you know, RDMA over converged Ethernet. Mm -hmm. And that requires a very specific setup. This is not VXLAN, this is Ethernet, right? Right. And so what's not clear from AI Ethernet is whether they're talking about building an Ethernet fabric as opposed to an IP fabric. So VXLAN fabrics could potentially consume an AI fabric, but I don't think we'll see in the early days that you will want to have a VXLAN fabric and an AI Ethernet fabric on the same hardware. It's much more likely that you would build one or the other. And then at some point in the future, they will probably converge once we understand. But there is no AI Ethernet yet. Rocky V2 is still very early. There's still really only Rocky V1. Um, so what they're basically saying is that we think we can do all of that with the existing silicon. Obviously, Broadcom's a major player with its ASICs here. Um, but there's still too much coming. But we know that pretty much whatever you can do, need to do with Rocky, it can be supported in the current ASICs that we have out today. So that's fair. Yeah, too much, too much uncertainty there. I wouldn't want to rush in and say I've got something ready. You'd be a what, find yourself in trouble. Yes, I agree. Uh, links in the show notes if you want to find out more about what Juniper is up to, but we'll move on. Recently, we talked about VMware moving from perpetual license to a subscription model and rationalizing its product offering. In late December, VMware issued an official statement that caused some confusion because it made it sound as if some products were being discontinued. VMware has released a more clearly worded statement to clarify what's happening. Uh, VMware is essentially selling you two products. There's VMware Cloud Foundation and VMware vSphere Foundation. If, for example, you just want vSphere or vSAN or NSX, you have to get a subscription to the full VMware Cloud Foundation package. Uh, vSphere, vSAN, NSX, and other offerings are not available as standalone products. You can only get them in subscription bundles now. Uh, and VMware just wanted to make that clear. <laughs> so Broadcom has a big problem. Let me just sort of tell you the stories, set the stage, and then talk about why I think Broadcom's uh, fumbled the ball here. Um, I've seen a number of really grim stories from VMware customers. I'll, I'll quote two of the, a couple of them here. Uh, I was quoted 17000 for Tanzu Kubernetes Grid uh, for four ESXi hosts. Yesterday, I received a quote for $100,000 for the same four ESXi hosts. That's at least eight times the price. Uh, another story is um, uh, we have perpetual licenses for a total of just under 1,600 cores in a single vCenter, two clusters of 35 hosts and about 450 VMs. We were quoted recently to renew our support contract in the region of 40 k We've just now been quoted over 500,000 a year or just over 1.1 million for three years. Wow. 
So uh, that was ultimately resolved. Uh, there is a deadline that will expire on the 2nd of February. If you don't get your perpetual licensing through before then, you're stuck on the new licensing. Uh, so that's something that customers, I'm not here to talk about the arbitrary rules that cust that these companies are putting around their pricing. I am not an expert on this sort of stuff, but you get the idea. 40K to one point million, you know, to go to 400, 500K a year, that's a 10X, more than 10X increase. Absolutely. Uh, and there's plenty of other stories in the same vein. Yeah, we know, you know, Broadcom has been signaling they're, they're planning to raise prices uh, on VMware. That's the reason they bought it. They want to just wring money out of it. And now customers are confronting it and having to make decisions about, do I stay or do I go? I, I think so. I mean, the challenge here, of course, is Broadcom needs to, to make a change. Like VMware was very inefficient, had way too many SKUs in way too many markets. It was incredibly confusing. And the cost of getting a quote, you know, of going to a, people are spending weeks working with resellers and with VMware sales reps to try and work out what licensing they need and what they can buy. I and mean, can this product be cheaper? And that that's not efficient business. That doesn't add value to customer networks when you're spending hundreds of hours every year negotiating, you know, licensing agreements. It's just not a valuable use of uh, a customer's time, but nor is it a valuable use of reseller's time or a vendor's time. So in principle, a rationalization of the SKUs was a way to do this. But what also seems to be an embedded in here is that one way that Broadcom's going to increase the average selling price of a product or the revenue per customer is to basically package everything into a bundle. So where before you might've been using just you know VMware ESX or whatever, now you actually have to buy VMware's Cloud Foundation or you have to buy their vSphere Foundation, right. which means you now have to buy a bundle. So if you were out there spending 40K before, you might now need to be buying 100K because you now have to buy, you know, it's like going to buy a car and you just want a basic car with four wheels and, uh, you know, with five wheels, four wheels on the ground and a steering wheel and something that works in a standard color and you just want it as cheaply as possible. And they say, the only car we can sell you is a Rolls Royce with metallic paint and leather interior. And, if, you know, you either pay for the full price or you don't buy a car at all. And Broadcom's kind of got people stuck. Does that make, did I make a good metaphor there? I mean, absolutely. I think that that's exactly what they're doing. Like, I, I, frankly, I think they're testing your proposition that IT actually doesn't really care about spending money. Um, they'll complain about it, but in the end, they'll cough it up and Broadcom mm. has <laughs> put all its chips yeah. in to say, all right, let's see if this is true. Yeah. So I think ultimately here, what we're seeing is that Broadcom's fumbled this. They've made some really bad boo-boos. What is clear is that VMware themselves don't know what the pricing is supposed to be and don't understand the new pricing. The transition from the old to the U is not clear. Obviously, resellers are in the same situation. And at the same time, a lot of resellers have been told you're out of the program and then subsequently have been told you're back in the program. A lot of VMware's cloud providers have been terminated. Customers don't know. They want perpetual licenses because they just want to do what they did last year. They don't want to change to this new licensing scheme unless they've got time to absorb these changes. But Broadcom's done the private equity thing. You come in, you want time to money. You want to get to the profit as fast as possible. You want to cut costs today. Don't wait. And that feels to me like they've raced in, said, here's the new sales model, and we're just going to bash our way through this. So I would say to you that if you're experiencing problems with Broadcom VMware right now, the best way you can hope here is to be patient and wait for them to work through the problems. The assumption there would be is that they're able to. Uh, we're already seeing that some of the licensing pages, so we've seen um, 
There's a web page where VMware talks about the end of availability of perpetual licensing and SaaS services. That web page has already been rewritten multiple times over the last two weeks <laughs> as the VMware employees get onto the site and say, oh, no, we didn't cover this situation or we haven't explained this very well. So it basically looks to me like Broadcom came in with the private equity but didn't do a very good job. So Broadcom sort of famous for this private We've talked a lot about Broadcom being a private equity company, right? Using that model, essentially coming in saying, like CA Technologies, this is a business that has a very long tail. We're just going to extract value from it. Uh, same thing with Symantec. Mm -hmm. and, and now VMware is in that box. We've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, and, and, and now it's here. <laughs> but usually with private equity, they come in, they spend six months working through and then rolling out changes. What Broadcom has done here is sort of, you know, pulled the pin out of the grenade and dropped it on the ground and it's, it's gone off. Right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, which can be in the long term can be useful because it sort of says to everybody, everything's changed, take notice of us, pay attention to us. Um, and of course, because VMware is so embedded in everybody's site. So I would say the kind of way to interpret this is that Broadcom fumbled the ball, failed to do the work necessary to make uh, the sales smooth and easy. They also, um, because this was an, such a large acquisition and it was being done in public, keep in mind that only a very small group of people knew what the new pricing was going to be. And so a lot of people inside VMware didn't have any pre-training, any pre-announcements. And I'll bet there's a lot of customers out there who are racing in to try and find out how the new pricing works because they want to set their budgets for 2024 or they want to understand what the future of this looks like. Maybe just hold off for a little bit, give Broadcom some time to fix these problems and then see where we are in two to four weeks and maybe the situation might have fixed itself. If not, then that would be the time to start thinking about what are you going to do? Do you have to make a decision about... Uh, you know, if if everybody suddenly starts stop ordering VMware because the price is just out of control, you might see Broadcom change their pricing model. So we just have to wait and see. Yeah, I think I feel like I don't. I wouldn't say that Broadcom has fumbled the ball. They've been signaling this is going to happen. They came in, they made it happen very quickly. They're tearing the bandaid right off. They're putting it right on the table. This is what it is now. If you want it, pay up. If you don't, go ahead, goodbye. Uh, maybe mm. if enough people say okay, goodbye, then Broadcom will change its strategy. But my guess is that's not going to happen. That enough high value customers will stay because transitioning is too costly, too complicated, uh, and will also come with its own expenses. They don't want the hassle, so they will just pay up. Yeah, I suspect that's true. This is why I'm saying don't rush off and get into a panic attack because you're, everything's more expensive. It is entirely possible that if enough customers balk at the changes, that Broadcom might say, oh, oh, okay, we've been a bit, we've overdone it and <laughs> right. start to... <laughs> we turn the dial too that, far, of course, we'll see. Yeah. yeah, but if they do that, of course, what happens to all the customers who got caught up in the higher pricing and so forth? So it's hard to know exactly how that's going to work out. That usually is not how it works. But I think the biggest problem here is a process failure, just completely fumbled the ball. Processing is complicated, but at the same time, it needed to be simplified. I do not want, you know, customers do not want, and I do not want to be a person sitting there spending weeks working on licensing and calculating sure. CPUs. And yep. I need, uh, you know, eight CPUs for this and 12 cores for that and blah, blah, blah. Nobody, I, I think that that era has to pass if you want to talk about cost effectiveness in the modern era.
Yeah. Well, we've got lots of links to uh, Reddit Tales of Woe with people complaining about uh, price hikes. Uh, we'll have those links in the show notes, but we'll move on. Uh, here's a story from our IT and geopolitics desk. There are warnings emerging about potential threats to undersea cables in the Red Sea uh, due to the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas as other regional actors look to create chaos. The website Telegeography notes that undersea cabling in the Red Sea is a major connection point between Europe and countries in Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. Regional conflicts are also delaying the laying of new cable and deployment of cable already laid but not yet active. Yeah, this was something that sort of flew under my radar, Drew. I hadn't seen too many people writing this up, and it wasn't until my brain kicked in um, hours after I read, a, you know, just something in passing. Uh-huh. Um, there's over a dozen submarine cables that pass through the Suez Canal. Uh, so at the top part, up around uh, where Egypt and Israel are, obviously there's the conflict going on with Gaza and the whole situation that's happening there around the Red Sea. Now, that's obviously a choke point, and there has been some suggestions that cables there have been cut, and because of the uh, the military problems that are going on there, those cables may not be repaired in the near future because who wants? there's only a couple of ships in the world that can repair cables, and you don't want to fly one into a you know anywhere near a war zone that involves right, Where people are missiles. launching drone attacks against ships, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, or, or missile attacks against ships, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the second thing is I'm that is much more worrying is, in fact, down in the southern area of the Red Sea around the Gulf of Aden, where um, the Houthi rebels in Yemen have stated, and particularly they um, put out some veiled threats on Telegram channels, which were picked up by a couple of small but niche uh, um, news outlets, uh, and they published the saying, showing a map of network of the submarine cables around the bottom of the Med and then around the Red Sea where Yemeni is. Now, I've got a bunch of maps here, Drew, to sort of show you. Um, this is not my strongest geography. So I had to get a map out and look at where Yemen is and then uh-huh. look at where the Houthis, the Houthis, the terrorist organization is actually operating. And they're operating right off the bottom tip of Yemen. And there is um, literally an area there called the Bab al-Mandeb. Please excuse my pop pronunciation if I don't understand, but Bab al-Mandeb. Um, it's a very narrow strait, and maybe less than ten to twelve miles wide in that area, uh-huh. and twelve submarine cables go through that space. <laughs> right. <laughs> so in theory, you could um, make moves to to take out major cables like CME WE three and CME WE four and CME WE five, who are absolutely huge trunk cables through that area. But there's many others, and that all goes right the way from Europe to India, Europe to UAE, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, places like that, and then of course Pakistan, and then right throughout Southeast Asia. Um, so if those cables were impacted, there could be a significant outage in the in the global internet, and that would of course, you know, if somebody bombed a couple of those cables, got a few sea mines and sunk them to the bottom, and managed to break a few cables. Um, that there is a there would be a massive re- movement of of load, and it's not at all clear whether the remaining capacity would be there to handle all of this. So there's a risk. There's a real risk. Yeah, I guess something to consider if you've got clients, customers in these areas, uh, thinking about uh, having backups, having uh, alternate routes for your traffic. Yeah, I didn't really like. It's hard to imagine. There's two ways that you can attack the cables. One way is to get a ship. And then drag your anchor across the bottom. Right. And uh, if you, you know, and uh, maybe you'll pick up a cable. And in fact, there was an example of a Chinese ship uh, doing that in uh, one of the northern European seas. And there were suggestions that it was deliberate. Nobody's quite, <laughs> nobody's quite managed to make that case one way or the other. But right. that was the that's the current what I've seen. But there's no question that the Houthi rebels um, uh, certainly have sea mines in their possession. 
of significant size and they could choose to just, you know, take them out and sink them. And, you know, in that very narrow area of the Bab el Mandeb Strait, they could potentially get a few cables caught up there. And that is really concerning. So it's not a pipe dream. It is real. It's unlikely, but that's not to say that terrorists are ra rational actors. They might decide that this is an easy way instead of trying to attack ships when there's something else preventing them from attacking the ships or something like that. Yeah. Uh, we'll have the links to all that, and we'll be able to throw a few maps into the uh, the notes that accompany this show. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. Um, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. You can see how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure, Web Gateway, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. 2024 is a year when companies will need to do more with less. As businesses grapple with economic uncertainty, it's more critical than ever to consolidate fragmented security and networking solutions to reduce operational complexity and costs. Palo Alto Networks has produced a virtual event so you can learn how the latest innovations in SASE can help your organization do things like automate costly and complex IT ops with AI-powered digital experience management, connect and secure branch offices and the hybrid workforce with SD-WAN, ZTNA 2.0, and Cloud Secure Gateway, and unlock better ROI through consolidation of point solutions with Prisma SASE. Go to paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment uh, or see the show notes for episode 464 for that link. One more time, paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment. We thank Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. Back to the news. Uh, Nokia has settled a patent licensing dispute with Oppo. This is a Chinese company that makes mobile devices. According to the press release from Nokia, Oppo will make royalty payments going forward and, quote, catch-up payments for a period of non-payment of royalties. Executives from both companies say they are pleased and delighted to have reached this agreement. What do you expect them to say? I know, right? <laughs> they despise Nokia for forcing him to pay these miserable patent fees. Is that what you expect them to say, Drew? Lots of Sorry. little fingers, lots of F-bombs. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make it to the press release. Um, so we've talked a lot about patent portfolios as revenue sources a few times, but I don't think we've seen a, seen a clear example of what this actually means in the real world. So I thought I'd bring this one in if you're interested in this. Uh, but basically the story here is that Oppo is a smartphone manufacturer that I've not heard of before, but there you go. Um, their devices do use 4G and 5G technology. To do this, you must license the patents that are in the 4G and 5G standard from the companies who managed to get their standards into this patents process. Yep. Now, so companies like Nokia either do the research and development to make patents. Some companies go out there and buy patents, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Um, and the trick then is to get them included in the 5G standards so that you can claim revenue from them. And that uh, when big companies license each other's technologies, they just agree not to charge each other any money. So that a lot of these patent portfolios are a defensive move. Yeah. It stops big competitors like Ericsson or Cisco or, you know, Huawei from saying, you owe us money. And you say, well, if I have to get out my portfolio, it's going to get ugly. You know? Right. Yes. <laughs> and they start measuring the portfolios and it all and it gets very, very uncomfortable. And it becomes all very unpleasant. Yes. Uh, so this is what the game is here. Obviously, Oppo is a small company. They have to pay. And then obviously, Nokia said, hang on, you're not paying for their patents, which are included in the 5G and 4G standards. Um, all commentary about whether you should be paying for patents in the 5G and 4G standards not included in this discussion. <laughs> and I would point out that while we currently owns more than 50% of all 5G patents, and I believe it may actually be higher, but I'm not going to go any higher without actually proof to prove that because Huawei has spent over $20 billion over the last 15 years to do the research and development and to get those patents uh, registered and, and then be able to claim them and get them into the standards and to be used in the current generation of 5G. True. Yes, and we'll continue to provide dividends for years to come, I'm sure. 
Yeah, well, for Huawei particularly means they don't owe other companies, you know. Right, again, it's Sorry. that swap, like we'll just share patents or share agreements and, yeah, not have to But Huawei is outspending the West uh, substantially on 5G patents for the time being. Uh, whether they'll continue to do so going forward or whether the West will step up is not clear to me at this time. Yeah. All right, links in the show notes. We'll move on. Zsailers getting into the SD-WAN business. The company has announced a set of SD-WAN gateway appliances aimed at branch, remote, and data center locations. The company is also announcing a SASE offering. Uh, Zscaler has been selling cloud-delivered security services for years and years, uh, but now that it has an SD-WAN, it can officially declare itself a SASE provider. So I guess congrats to Zscaler for uh, getting that branding in line. <laughs> People understand what SASE means, although I'm going to be a little bit cynical, Dre. Uh, introduces industry-first zero-trust SASE. No, not going to take that lying down. There's no way you can say that you're an industry-first zero-trust SASE in 2024. That title went a good 10 years ago, I would say. Zero-trust has been around for quite some time, and everybody else is there. Zscaler's just finally made it in my claims. Secondly, zero Zscaler has been very much... Um, are claiming their zero trust platform, their, their SSE platform as zero trust for a number of years. So suddenly to claim it's an industry first when you've been having it for years, that just feels like just straight up, well, bordering on dishonest, maybe uh, let's go with marketing exaggeration because somebody just got carried away with themselves, but I want to call that out. I, I, what do you think? I mean, every press release we run into, I have issues with. Uh, so I guess it's good occasionally now to, to to just remind folks, please, please tone it down with the the industry first, the market leading, the whatever, yes. whatever, whatever. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. No. Just tell us what it does. It's just, a, it's just annoying. It's, it really it's, is. Point. It's, and it's not it just, just Zscaler. Don't know. It is the whole yeah. industry. But this, is, I guess, is an egregious example of uh, the the press release overstatement. It is not. It's not an industry first. No. Everyone's got one. It's like an armpit at this point. If you want to claim your armpits, an industry first. Go anyway. Uh, why does this matter? Zscaler is a large company that has um, that up until now has been built on the edge is your problem, not our problem model. So what they you, up until now, you send them their traffic, and they will be able to do data logging, security analysis, user performance, performance monitoring, a whole bunch of stuff. And they've been very successful at it. And just to get this understanding how big they are, they currently have a market capitalization of $35 billion, Drew, on $1.8 billion in revenue, but still making $200 million a year in losses. So this company is actually very modest in size, much smaller uh, in terms of, over to, of of revenue, say, compared to Palo Alto and its SASE product or Cisco's SASE product, for example. But their market value is really, really high. And I believe that what's happened here is the SD-WAN markets up until now have been sending traffic to Zscaler. So if you had a Juniper or a, an extreme SD-WAN or a Ruber SD-WAN in the early days with the Silver Peak, you know, post-Silver Peak acquisition, yep. and you wanted to get some SASE or some SSE, you would just tell the box to send all the traffic off to Zscaler and then away you go, right? Right. In what's clear to me is that these SD-WAN markets have now consolidated into SASE platforms and SSE platforms. All of the main vendors have got their own. And now Zscaler's out there going, hang on, we're starting to lose customers here. Or, you know, we, there's, where's the future here? Um, and of course, the thing about all of the SD-WAN, all the SSE from Cisco and Juniper and Aruba and those types of things is all hardware. There has to be a hardware edge. And there are reasons why a hardware edge. And so really what uh, Zscaler has finally announced is that they're going to produce some hardware, a couple of white box servers, <laughs> not much. You can pick up a, an OEM white box server for 500 bucks. That's what that looks like they're doing here. Uh, running it on, but you can also run it on a VM. So if you are wanting to use Zscaler as an SSE, 
uh, you might want to be able to run it as a VM. So what we're seeing in things like petrol station chains or retail chains is they put a little mini cluster of small NUC style or mini uh -huh. servers, uh -huh. and they run a little VMware or Proxmox cluster on it. And then you start running your appliances in there. So Zscale is saying that I've got a Linux version of this, which will run on various hypervisors and start to be able to use that then to do the edge translation to send it in. Right. So uh, it looks to me like Zscale is saying like, that's where the market's going. We have to follow it. Uh, and so they're starting to put out something modest, not too big, uh, but doesn't really look like a big deal to me. Uh, to my mind, as I said, Zscaler, I think, was probably one of the first companies to actually make a successful, su successful business out of cloud-hosted security services, not an MSP, mm -hmm. but actually um, using you know, cloud scalability, uh, multi-tenancy, and so on to deliver security services. They were one of the first to do it. And then this SASE market, which integrates cloud-delivered security and SD-WAN, started to emerge. And as an incumbent, Zscaler was like, yeah, whatever, cute. Um, but <laughs> the, Gartner, <laughs> the Gartner black uh, gra gravitational well of, of marketing around SASE, I think, has maybe forced uh, Zscaler's hand here. Or maybe it's customers coming in saying, we want to use your cloud services, but we need an SD-WAN gateway to get there. Why not just offer yeah. us one? And, and so they're like, yeah, fine. Yeah, I've always maintained that uh, Zscaler was always going to come uh, a cropper on this, because if you're not controlling the edge, you're not going to capture the traffic in the core. Mm -hmm. Right. And that always meant that companies like Cisco could just build their own and then dispossess Zscaler of its customers. Right. Right. <laughs> customers don't want to do the integration. Why would I buy one product and then send it to another company? Why don't I just buy it all from one vendor and I've only got one throat to choke? Right. Yep. Um, and that is absolutely a trend for enough, certainly for enough customers. And we're seeing this across all sorts of things. This is customers don't want to have to deal with multiple vendors. They want to simplify their number of suppliers. And I think, Zscaler's model is now becoming obsolete for traditional enterprises, at least. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, they are now fully uh, buzzword compliant uh, with this SD-WAN offering that puts yeah, them fully in the sassy category. Don't really stand up. Much. Well, that <laughs> Par for the course for everybody. Industry first, sassy in 2024. Come on, come yeah. on. Yeah, dial mm. back. Uh, three more stories before we wrap, uh, including uh, financial results from IBM and Intel. But uh, first, uh, we'll talk, tell you about Verizon. It's writing off $5.8 of the value of its business wireline operations uh, that sells communication services to businesses. Part of the write-off comes from a decline in MPLS services as more enterprises are adopting SD-WAN. There's that word again. Uh, plus a decline in wired business phone services is also a driver. Verizon filed this Form 8K with the SEC about the write-off. And according to Verizon, the new balance of its wireline business for the end of 2023 is one. 1.7 billion, so knocking almost six billion uh, off that total. Yeah, they're writing off the goodwill of that business unit, Drew. So you know that 1.6 billion has an X amount of value. That uh, business is in decline. So those people who are were buying wireline MPLS services, that uh, industry is in systemic decline, shrinking at something like five to ten percent per quarter. Mm. Right, mm. and they specifically called out SD WAN. I think the, the other side here is that Verizon tried to be an SD WAN company to sell SD WAN to its customers, and has failed completely to do that. It actually admitted to that and stuff. Um, they're not losing the customer in the sense that the customers may still be running SD WAN over the MPLS, but increasingly they then moved that um, bandwidth off MPLS to DIA, uh, you know, some sort of internet access. But increasingly, as they buy more bandwidth, once you've got an SD WAN, just go and buy a broadband. Go and buy a cable, go and buy somebody's internet, whatever mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. And um, this is something that we flagged and we've talked about. Can I can I brag here? Is this another one of the spreadsheet items? I'm pretty sure this is something we talked about I, a lot. I, I feel like this qualifies as a spreadsheet because we have been talking about this for ages, yeah. 
Yeah. Excuse me while I go running around and patting myself <laughs> right. on the back and taking don't, a victory lap. Don't dislocate your shoulder. Yeah. But I, I think the other side of this is that um, it certainly points out that enterprises don't um, turn to the telcos for services, for enterprise services. So the natural extension here was that, you know, these telcos should have been able to say, well, you've got our MPLS, why don't you go and buy our SD-WAN? And obviously customers aren't. They would rather do it themselves or buy it from a third party to manage it or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is the harbinger of MPLS services being in significant decline. 5.8 billion is a lot of value to write off. It's it's a good time for Verizon to write this off, by the way. They did fine. It doesn't affect their financial results, which is amazing. You, wow. <laughs> you're writing off 5.8 billion of capital value and it doesn't affect your results in the least. Think about that for a minute. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, the high cost of running these dedicated MPLS backbones for dedicated services is increasingly becoming a niche business. And in fact, when I tweeted about this, somebody popped up and he said, yeah, Iron Verizon is increasing its MPLS rates. Um, obviously, it wants to get cost recovery or it wants to make mm -hmm. the most of the customers it's got left, whatever the reason is. And I think, of course, as MPLS gets more and more expensive, you know, these dedicated lines you know, for traditional dedicated bandwidth, it'll just drive more and more customers towards SD-WAN and drive that business into the ground that much quicker. Yeah. So. I, I'm, it's too early to run around going MPLS, you know, services are dead, dedicated circuits are dead, but I wouldn't be running around saying it's a, it's a, it's a growth market at this point. It's pretty much on its way to dying. It's cancerous and it's on its, on its, uh, not quite into palliative care, but it will be soon. Oh boy. <laughs> a grim turn for MPLS. I will also say, you know, the, the service providers, the telcos did not help their case, uh, because you talk to anybody who's had to work with them. They are hard to work with, slow to respond, uh, very difficult, uh, not great customer service. So if I have a cheaper, better, faster option, yes, I will use that. <laughs> yes. I don't think anybody is shedding tears for right. the telcos at this point. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> if they are, they're crocodile tears right. streaming down my face. Yes. yes. Tears of sarcasm. Yeah, for what it's worth, crocodiles don't cry, just so you know. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> All right, Intel announced its uh, fourth quarter and full year results for 2023. For the quarter, Intel posted revenues of $15.4 up 10% year-over-year. However, the company had a net income loss of $2.7 billion. Uh, for the full year, revenues were $54.2 billion, down 14% versus 2022, with a net income of $1.7 billion. Uh, Reuters reporting that Intel shares dropped 12% on this announcement due to a weak forecast uh, for the first quarter of 2024. Analysts are concerned Intel is lagging behind in the AI-driven movement for GPUs and that PC and laptop sales aren't going to make up the difference. No, you can't imagine it. Really. It's pretty <laughs> difficult to imagine. Uh, there was a big run-up uh, in the share price of Intel up until these results. People had been believing that Intel was turning itself around and becoming great, and you should get into this as quickly as possible. But um, it's uh, people seem to have forgotten that Intel is moving away from its only made here. That is, they designed their CPUs and built them in their fabs. And now they're moving to a working with everybody. That's a big shift. They have to convince people who want to make chips to come and use their fabrication plants. And that is a custom process. Once a customer makes a decision to work with Intel's fabs, they are locked into Intel's fabs going forward because you have to design very specifically to the hardware that Intel uses to make chips. And most of their fabs are different. Now, Intel is, of course, rebooting its fabrication plants in many countries globally, which means it has to spend a lot of money to build out that fabrication capacity and then to find customers for those plants. But if you consider that TSMC is spending $100 billion just in this year alone wow. to build out its next generation of fabs, 
compared to Intel's 10 billion, you might sort of see the scope of the task that Intel has got ahead of it. Uh -huh. There are certainly reasons to be hopeful. There's a lot of manufacturing moving away from China at a very steady rate. Um, and that manufacturing will be moving to Intel chips. You know, Intel can be a winner in that market where once uh, certain types of uh, behind the leading edge chips, so there's certain chips down, you know, at the older in the older generations. Yeah. And as they are not being manufactured in China, as people shift their orders offshore to Japan, to the Philippines, to Vietnam, to India, and then increasingly into the West. So in Europe and the USA, um, Intel is building fabs in Germany, um, in Japan, also in India, I believe. Certainly they've got a number of fans, so certainly with substantial government subsidies. So it's not like Intel's on the hook for all of it. So there's reasons to be hopeful, but there's reasons to to doubt whether Intel can continue to turn itself around on any long-term basis. And it, uh, I would caution anybody to believe that Intel is is going to be back in business anytime soon. I think it was overly financialized under the previous uh, management, and it's going to have to spend a lot of years at a, at a lower share price to turn itself around. Yeah, it's going to have to get comfortable with it uh, no longer being the giant of uh, the CPU or the chip business. Such a massive change in you know in internally to go from we designed the CPUs, we make the CPUs, we sell the CPUs, you know, we make the networking chips, we sell the networking chips, you know, we make them on our, our you know, that sort of thing. And now all of a sudden Intel's going, no, 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 we're an open platform. We want you. and Intel's got great skills in terms of building partnerships across those divides, uh -huh. Uh -huh. working with open source and all that sort of stuff. They do know how to do this, but still a major change in the way that you go to market. And I would expect it to be a bumpy time ahead. Yeah. All right, our last story for the day. IBM also released Q4 and full-year financial results for 2023. Big Blue is bullishly boasting about its results, citing rising demand quarter over quarter for its Watson X and generative AI products. IBM revenues were $17.4 billion for Q4, up 4% year-over-year, and net income of $3.3 billion. For the full-year revenues were $61.9 billion, up 2% year-over-year. By business unit, its software division, which includes Red Hat, brought in $7.5 billion for the quarter. Consulting brought in $5 billion for the quarter that is some impressive billable hours uh, and infrastructure revenues were 4.6 billion there's lots to lots to unpack here i think the big one uh the share price spiked on the free cash flow which was 12 billion give or take mm -hmm. 100 million free cash flow is the money that you earn before capex or reinvestment so before you take away any money or anything else so that basically means they turned over 17 billion dollars 17.4 billion of revenue and their raw profit was 12 billion Obviously, they have to spend on buying buildings, buying companies, reinvesting in product development, running teams of developers. But when you've got that amount of free cash flow, you can actually make decisions about making a profit. You've got absolute control about how much profit you make. If you want to say, hang on, my profit's starting to fall away, you just ax a couple of business units, sack 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, and you're going to shake out a billion dollars from that free cash flow, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what shareholders love. So having such a huge profit margin or such a huge free cash flow means that you can choose to do buybacks, you can choose to do dividends, you can buy more companies, you can invest in internal products, and it's desirable for investors if you want to do that. I think the observation here might be that the Red Hat acquisition had a lot of overheads that could be reduced. Obviously, they laid off some people, they've been able to charge more for Red Hat products than Red Hat did, and just get, like, keep in mind with software, you make it once and any extra sale from the after the first, you know, is just instant profit to the bottom line because yeah. you've already made it, right? Yeah. Make it once, sell many is type, kind of the model. Uh, but also the consulting revenue. And we talked before about 
it's it's my general view that enterprises are increasingly unwilling to have in in-house people doing integration or performing the strategic roles that they, you know, where's the market going? What vendors should be buying? What products should be? How do we do this integration of these services? And I know that Gartner has also seen massive increases in its consulting business, which would confirm the view that, which I said before, is that increasingly people don't want multi-vendors. They don't want to integrate. They don't want to make choices about who they supply. They want to reduce the complexity. And I think IBM's being a major winner out of that. I If, if 5 billion is a regular quarter for consulting, $20 billion a year in folks coming into your shop to, to give you some advice that is, it must be some pretty good advice or people are pretty free with money. <laughs> yeah. This is why I don't think Broadcom and VMware are under threat. <laughs> if you can, if people are out there spending 20 billion a quarter, 20 billion a year or 5 billion a quarter on consulting from IBM. Right. There's plenty of money in There's enterprise. Plenty of money. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm not too worried about Broadcom in the long run. I think they're going to, they'll work it out. It's always possible that they flub it, right? Remember, of most course. large acquisitions do fail. You know, yep. certainly way more than 50% at that sort of scale, something like 70% of acquisitions at that size fail. And of course, Broadcom will know that and they'll be working to prevent it and so on and so forth. But yeah. I, I fundamentally believe that Broadcom, it's going to be rough and uh, they'll work their way through it. But, you know, the, there's the prize. Crazy. Well, you know, why wouldn't you just hire people to do it for you? It's just, just boggling my mind. Yeah. yeah. Why would you buy branded consulting is, is often something I don't quite understand. Yeah. Strange. Anyway, that wraps up the news portion. Stick around for our Tech Bytes uh, podcast. We're going to be talking with uh, NetOrca about their uh, service catalog offering. Stick around. Uh, and that's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're having an automation conversation. Uh, let's say you've built a set of automations for your network infrastructure, and now you want teams or departments in your organization to use those automations. Our sponsor, NetOrca, offers a service catalog that provides a simple front end to make it easy for internal customers to come and consume all those slick capabilities that you've worked so hard to develop. We talk with Scott Rowlandson. He's director at NetOrca's parent company, NetAutomate, to get details on how all this works. Uh, Scott, welcome to the podcast. So in a nutshell, can you tell us what does NetOrca do? So NetOrca is a centralized software service uh, that's deployed in an organization and allows teams to both offer and consume services from other teams via their own Git repository and a standardized CI/CD process. Um, it doesn't configure the infrastructure. It just gives a way for, for teams to have a standardized way of offering that service and managing those service re requests from the customer. Okay, so I think that's something important to, to double down on up front. Your product is not doing all of the uh, infrastructure backend work to provide the automations. You are a front-end service catalog that's taking advantage of automations that have already been built out. Yeah, exactly, because we don't, we don't want to um, you know redo how automation is built on the backend. There's plenty of tools out there to do that. It's more about fixing that one service uh, catalog and service ownership problem and allowing network automation engineers to do what they do best and utilize all the good tools that they already have. Yeah, because a lot of automation is a domain-specific thing, right? So if you're a network engineer or a storage engineer or a server engineer or a VM, you know, whether you're using Nutanix or VMware or, you know, Red Hat or whatever, right? Each of those automations that you prefer for those are, tend to be very domain-specific. And But the challenge has always been, how do you get your network automations and give them away to the other teams to consume? Yeah, exactly. And the, the idea behind this is to promote properly defining your service in a well-validated and um, consumable manner. Um, so often, you know, a mistake that 
automation engineers will do is make the customer fill out, you know, a raw t- Terraform config and have all these optional fields that no one really cares about. Mm-hmm. So with this platform, you define your service for like basically the minimum that you want from the customer. And then you get a structured change through that. And then you can integrate that and, you know, set all your defaults or do your optional parameters on whatever platform you're using in the back end. Okay. So the folks who know all of the gnarly details on the back end get to worry about that. And the people consuming the service, they just need to put in some essential information, a few fields to actually get that service going. Exactly. And then by having that offered to the customer, um, NetOcker also allows you to change that schema in the future. So uh, you can add fields if if you ever needed to add optionality to what the service is. Mm-hmm. You can do that in a structured manner um, where it doesn't require all your customers to then go and change all their existing service requests. You could update your schema uh, on NetOcker and decide to only apply that to new requests and keep the service going for all your existing customers. Yeah. So I think the key here would be is that NetOrca works when you're an organization, probably a fairly large organization or an organization with a lot of automations across a lot of disciplines. And you've got some sort of DevOps because, you know, as we were talking, I was thinking, what's the example of what NetOrca does? And I was thinking like, I'm a DevOps team. I've got an update to my application coming in. To do that, I need to deploy, you know, 30 or 40 containers because that's where the application is contained. And part of that is when you deploy a container, you get new IP addresses. So you need to make a request for firewall rules. I now, NetOrca could build me an API that then would consume a, a, a networking automation that would then go off, create a change request, which could then be authorized and approved. And then it would go off and deploy that to the firewall. So and something is added to the firewall rule base. And, you know, and equally the same for storage requests and you know, allocation on the on the on the hypervisor service and so on. Is that the idea that we're talking about? Yeah, well, I guess NetOrchid doesn't just create you the API. It creates you a method of offering that service all the way down to a customer Git repository. And what I mean by that is you specify via that schema the piece of YAML that a customer needs to put in their own Git repository, subject to their own merge request and approval processes within their team. Mm. Um, that would then be validated and sent to NetOrca. And and in terms of the service that's offered there, I mean, uh, it's it's good to go into one of the customers that, that uses it right now, is uh, uses it to, to supply quite complex services, like mm. a pattern to deliver, in, in your example, a DevOps team, they want to deliver a web app. And the service that they offer is like pattern one, for example, that has an approved secure VIP, an ASM policy, the appropriate firewall rules and appropriate certificates. So that team can use NetOrca to offer pattern one and then use NetOrca as the orchestrator to then trigger off all those various teams uh, to do all the aspects or the bits that they need to uh, deliver that pattern. Okay, so when you say orchestrator, NetOrca is, I guess, interacting with other Git repos and telling teams, hey, this needs to be done? It's it's a push from the Git repo. So what we deploy with NetOrca is a standardized CI/CD process. Mm-hmm. Um, so a customer just has to clone a repo, and they clone the GitLab.ci YAML file or or any other runner equivalent, and then that just syncs up their repo to NetOrca. So what we do we don't put a lot of complexity into the CI/CD process. That the complexities in the application itself. That's what determines. Um, is if, if there's a diff or there's modifiers and deletes from the customer config. 
and it allows for quite a smooth CI/CD process. I think uh, you know the CI/CD isn't deploying the infrastructure; the CI/CD is just doing the request. Mm-hmm. The the infrastructure providers then run their own processes in their own time frame. You know, because we all know some organizations, if you need to do prod, it could be, have to happen at 11 p.m. or after a couple of approvals. So yeah. it decouples that deployment from the customer request and allows that customer CI/CD process to but uh, be unblocked all the time and and not affect the the requests they make. Got it. Okay. So we worked through one example. Could you give us another way this gets used? Yeah. So another customer uh, uses that for a, a much less complex service, I guess, in terms of offering firewall rules. And that just allows, you know, development team to say, hey, we want 443 to this app. They have a simple bit of YAML that they put into their infrastructure uh, Git repo. And that goes off and deploys. And and one of the major advantages of offering a simple service like that, uh, I know having done a lot of file rules in the past, you never really have good ownership of the file rules. Uh-huh. You don't often give customers <laughs> the way to delete things. So, so that allows customer to say, oh, uh, two years later, I don't need that file rule anymore. I'm going to get rid of it. And because it's in their Git repo and that's always synced um, and it's synced to the team that's providing that service, you know, you have that full ownership of the rule and you can take it out later. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Because, you know, pruning rules is something that probably doesn't happen as often as it should. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is because of the disconnect in which customer owns it or which customer requested it. So when we've, uh, you know, worked on uh, finding owners for rules in the past, you often have to rely on a CMDB service that's done retroactively. So the CMDB is built, you know, way after these rules have been requested. So by giving, and and the reason we use Git is it, it is that audit log. It's that, um, you know, source of truth on the customer side of things. Change history, who logged it, where did they put exactly. it, why, you know, and they've all been authenticated to it. Exactly. And, and that's why we use Git instead of, you, you can use an API to request service in the network, but we recommend the Git path. And that's exactly to give that long-term ownership. Those developer teams, they go into their Git project and they can see the infrastructure repo has those rules in it and it gives them a better opportunity to delete it later. And one of the other benefits that provides is that as a network team, it does allow you to charge services, uh, cross-charge within large organizations. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that stops cross-charging is if you don't give anyone an opportunity or the way to delete something, it's difficult to charge them per month from, you know, if you're an automation team. But in this manner, you 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 can say, all right, we're going to charge you. It's in your Git repo. If you want to get rid of it, all you have to do is delete that bit of YAML from your, comp- your repo and we'll stop charging you. So right. that reduces technical debt, basically. Now, when I'm calling this, obviously there's an API to call NetOrca, but what other ways can I actually call it? Could I use Ansible? Yeah, so as part of the product, we have a Python SDK that's open source and an Ansible Galaxy module, mm-hmm. and that handles all the common uh, interactions with with NetOrca right. on the API side of things. But this is very but, software development. This is not a GUI that you install. This is you need to be using an Ansible module to call NetOrca. This is for hardcore DevOps and and orchestration automation type people to do this product, and you're providing this as a service type thing. It does have a GUI as well, so. Mm-hmm. Um, both the customers and the service providers have a GUI. Yeah. 
yeah. and they can see the state of everything. Right. Um, generally, we we suggest people who are automating it to do it via the API because obviously, if you're you're deploying hundreds of services and and those you know have got hundreds of changes from customers, you want to be doing that via the API. Yeah. But you still yeah. have a GUI there to see all the stats and um, the so. state of everything. So as a customer, you can log into the GUI and uh, you can see that that uh, service that you requested, whether it's been completed or not, mm, and mm. if it hasn't been completed, how many change, how many changes behind your current Git repo it is. Right. Um, so my DevOps would be sitting there using Git to do all of their deployment of those containers. They'd have all of their workflows and all the YAML associated, and NetOrca reads the YAML in the Git to be able to go and trigger all of those automations for me. You've provided me with a piece of middleware that does that. Yeah, correct. And yeah. and a middleware that's extensible to handle uh, any type of uh, service that's offered via and, and subsequent triggering of automated processes. Right. So I think um, a lot of our listeners have ticketing systems in place and probably extensive. Uh, why wouldn't I just use that? Um, yeah, well, I guess the, the big difference with that is most ticketing systems don't have that integration with something like Git. So they don't have that ongoing management of the ticket. A lot of ticketing systems is kind of one and done, and that often leads to a black hole, which <laughs> I think developers and customers really hate. You, you put a ticket in, it just stays the same state forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, it, and then another thing with the ticketing system, if you have if you have to delete something later on, you have to then find whatever ticket that is to do the deletion thing. Why? Why would you do that? Right. Um, so. The integration with Git and the integration with that customer state makes it a ticketing system. It's not a. It's not just a ticketing system. It's a state engine, and it's matching the state of what the customer request is. So the state being what the customer wants, with the state of whether that's deployed on the infrastructure or not. Um, and what that enables you to do, uh, as opposed to you know just putting something out on a traditional ticketing system, is you can offer services to the rest of your organization before your automation is super slick and perfect. And you can take advantage of, um, of, of getting it out there and then getting some customer requests in that maybe you could even do manually. Uh, you can, mm. you can still go and complete tickets manually on that if you have to. Um, but you can then decide to invest and improve that automation in the backend as it goes along. So you're saying I could roll out NetOrca. If you build it, they will come kind of an idea like, look, I've got a service catalog, come and use it, which then becomes sort of a justification for now invest more for me in network automation business owners. Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of the problems with network automation is that we often try and build the best solution, but we don't have that connection to what the rest of the organization actually wants mm -hmm. and values. And that's ultimately what drives budget and spending. You know, we don't get paid just to do the fun stuff. So yeah, it enables that you, you can offer a service earlier than you would normally if you mm. had to build a bespoke piece of infrastructure to get those requests in. Mm. And then you can decide from all those services you've offered, which is the one that I should spend my automation dollars on to improve. And this is something that you have customers doing today. So you have a large bank in particular that's running this today to enable you know diverse teams to deliver this type of service catalog and to to share the capabilities. Yep, yep, we have customers um, running this and doing hundreds of changes per month on this. Um, so it scales and and what we found is yeah once those customers build that 
Git repo and and then realize that they can request a SERP. So customers being the internal development teams of these organizations. Once they get on board, they've got that Git repo out there. They they really love the ability just to have that one-stop shop to see that a service is available, put that config into the Git repo and see it spin up and be completed. And that Orca, I, I asked the question earlier about why not just use the ticketing system and I think you made a good case, but on sort of flipping that around, can I tie you know, jobs that are kicked off from that Orca into my ticketing system if I need to, because I'm sort of using my ticketing system as an ad hoc, like change management or control system or job tracking or chargeback system. And I, and I want a record to go into my ticketing system, even if it's a job being kicked off from that Orca. And, and well, so that kind of goes on the uh, deploying before you're ready, because you could actually offer a service via NetOrca um, with the dream of having that fully automated but your only automation is actually picking up that request from NetOrca and putting it into your Jira ticket and someone doing it manually. So that could be your day one. And and by not tightly coupling NetOrca with the infrastructure delivery, we give those teams the ability to do that and evolve it, you know, as their automation journey goes along. Okay, well, I think there's probably a lot more we could say here, but we are up against our time limit. So, Scott, if folks want to dig into details around NetOrca or maybe try it, where should they go? Uh, just go to our website, netorca.io, and there's a information on the product and an About Us section um, to contact us for more information. Okay, that's netorca.io. We'll have that link and others in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, thank you, Scott, for being with us. And of course, thank you, our listeners, for listening. If you like this episode, you can find many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog all at packetpushers.net. You can hear us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts if you would. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.